our third week. There we go. We are in our third week going over our series called Uncovering Sexuality, and we've come a long way so far. We already talked about sex in the garden. Pastor Matt talked to us about God's design uh, for our sexuality to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. We also talked about sex in the dark, and Pastor Dave talked to us about the ways in which sin comes in and disrupts that wonderful plan that God has for us uh, when it comes to our sexuality. Now, today, we're talking about sex in the city, and isn't that a fun topic? Fun title. I think Pastor Mike came up. Did you come up with it? I didn't. I wish I could claim it. But Sex in the City, that is our topic today. And what I'm going to do is take a step back and then zoom out a little bit because I want to look at some of the different ways in which our sexual behavior affects the society at large. That's what we mean by the city. The place, the, the social, physical, outer public space that is shared by individuals who are part of a larger community. Does that make sense? Great. I think that it's very important for us to look at this because it doesn't matter how much we talk about God's design for our sexuality or or that we are created in God's image. All those are great things. We simply cannot afford to turn a blind eye to what's happening out there in the city. We, we just cannot Because that is the place where we are constantly being bombarded with competing messages on how we should live out our sexuality. That is the place where we constantly run into billboards, advertising all sorts of clubs that we could visit. The city is the place that where we, where we walk around and we find clothing stores promoting a particular look or a body type we feel we should accommodate to. The city is that place where we find schools where kids are watching porn on their cell phones in the middle of class, sharing it with everyone else, and the list goes on. There's many other things that happen in the city, and, and it is tragic, it is sad, it is brutal. And the reason why I'm naming all of these examples is not so that we can say, oh yeah, the culture is so bad. Oh yeah. The media, mmm, it's terrible. The school system, yes, they need help. They need a lot of help. <laughs> they might, but that is not the reason why I'm bringing all of this up. The reason why I'm doing it, the reason why I'm giving you all these examples is because we are all responsible for it. We're all responsible for what happens in our society. And maybe some of you are thinking, whoa, no, 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 no. Wait a second, Gabby. Don't pull me in. I do not participate in any of those things. So I am in no way contributing to the way in which the city is destroying our people or our society. And if that's you, I want to ask you to just keep listening with your, with your hands and your heart open. Because that might, that might be true. But by the end of it, you might realize that it might not be true. Now, maybe you are here and you do participate in a few of those things, but you still don't think that your actions can have the power to shape an entire society. And maybe your reasoning sounds a little bit like this. Hey, what I do in my own, in my private life is my own business. As long as no one finds out, no one will be affected. Everybody else is doing it. Why should I miss out? Am I hitting home with any of these statements? 
I see a few heads nodding. I know I am. And you know why I know? Because I've said those exact words many times in my life. Many, many times. And it wasn't until a few years back that I realized that they were actually lies I used to justify my behavior. So I hope you know that this is not a message to condemn anyone or to shame anyone. This is just a wake-up call. You can call it just an informative sermon that I'm sure will benefit you um, in, in, in one way or another. So what I want to do is to is present you with a particular scenario or a, or a case study, so to speak, uh, that can help us see how, when it comes to sexuality, our personal choices contribute to the creation of social patterns that give shape and form to the larger society. And I am going to use the example of pornography. And the reason why I'm doing that is because of all the options we have when it comes to, to exercising our sexuality outside of God's covenant and God's boundaries. Of all the options we have, pornography is the one that most people tend to think is not as bad. Or maybe it's, the, it's more innocent or... I don't know, we, we rationalize it as, as just the best option. So that's, that's why, why I want to sh- uh, talk about it, because all of those things are, are not true. So let's start with this little person in the corner of the screen. Let's imagine that he or she is at home looking at porn online. And maybe this person is married... But is thinking, as long as there is no sexual contact, this is not considered cheating. I believe that. I believe that. We, we, we try to convince ourselves. I am not really hurting anyone. Or maybe this person is single and is thinking, hey, there is absolutely nothing wrong with this. This is actually a release for me or a medication for the lack of sex that I have in my life. And now, an, an interesting statistic is that 80 to 90% of internet porn users only access material that is available for free. Completely for free. 90% of the people are not willing to pay for it, but they want it. And, and if that is the case, how on earth can this industry represent a billion dollar business? If people are doing it for free, no one's paying for it. Here's why. Because behind the screen... There is an entire sex industry that is fueled by human trafficking and all forms of commercial sexual exploitation. And I want to spend just a couple of minutes explaining how how this industry operates. And I know that many of you know this very, very well. You've studied it. You're part of it. You fight it. But I think that we should never get tired of exposing just the evil forces that are all over our city and are destroying it. And also because the more we know about it, the more chances we have to do something about it and and fix it and change it. So are you okay with that? All right. So this is a quick snapshot, by no means exhaustive, of how human trafficking works with respect to sex slavery. It starts with targeting vulnerable girls. Sometimes it's boys, but mostly girls uh, and women that sex traffickers can lure or force into slavery. And this can be done through the use of violence or by promising something that the girl may want. 
be it money because she's poor or a boyfriend because she feels lonely or a good paying job because she has dreams and aspirations like all of us. There's many reasons. Sex traffickers spot it, whatever the need is, and they offer it as a trap. So that is the first step. The woman is trapped. Once she's trapped, once all these women are trapped, they are sent out to different, part, different parts of the city or the nation or the world or maybe to the block behind the place where she lives. And they are sold. And their pimps or whoever owns them makes them work at restaurants or, or massage parlors and, and others become dancers or prostitutes or porn stars. It's a connection. And they go through a special training where they have to fake things, where they have to uh, pretend that they love what they're doing. They're taught to smile even when they're suffering. They are taught to pretend that they are experiencing such pleasure when they are being broken, completely broken. And if they don't comply to this, they get punished over and over again until they are completely broken and stripped from all sense of dignity and self-worth. And the punishments uh, rage from verbal and physical abuse to lashes and all sorts of horrendous things. Many people keep these women in dark rooms and others literally use human cages. And I know that all of this is really hard to digest. Um, it's really, really, really hard. And trust me, I, I would have loved to come this morning with a sermon that is funny and packed with jokes and happy. But I knew that this was not the case today. Because as I was preparing this message, I could not stop thinking about the millions of women. Millions of women all around the world for whom this is or has been a reality. Women that have been abused or raped or beaten. Uh, and some of... Some of you are sitting here in these pews. So I'm about to be done with this little part. Just bear with me for, for a little longer. There's just one more piece of information that, that I want to share with you. And it's this one. Well, the average age of girls that are trafficked varies a lot depending on the state and the country. They can be forced into this industry as young as age 13. And sometimes it's even younger. As many as 200,000 children, 200,000 children are bought for sex in the United States every year, and 80% of them are U.S. citizens. This is what the sex industry looks like, all of that. And it is so powerful and so influential that the music and the fashion industries are constantly having to accommodate to the standards presented by this leading industry. And all those standards have to do with behavior, with body, with violence, with looks. And some of those accommodations are so subtle, we cannot easily recognize them, but they are everywhere. They're in the new fashion trend for this summer. They're in the magazine covers that you look at when you're waiting at the checkout line of the supermarket. All of that is behind those websites. All of that is behind those clubs. All of that is what we fuel every time we pay for sex. 
All of that is what we support when we agree to accommodate our bodies to an ideal image presented by the media. And I, myself, am guilty of that. There's been many times at the grocery store when I look at some magazine with a supermodel on the cover page and I look at it and I wish I looked like that. And it happens all the time while I'm driving. While I see a movie, oh, look at that. She's gorgeous. I wish my body looked like that. We all do it. Or maybe not. Many of us do it. Many of us do it. When it comes to our sexual choices, we may think we are just minding our own business. But what we're really doing is feeding a beast that is eating us alive. We're feeding a beast that is eating entire cities alive. And the question that we ought to ask ourselves is this. How can we navigate such a hyper-sexualized world? How can we make choices that will lead us to live lives of integrity? To answer those questions, we are going to look at the book of Proverbs. It's going to pick up a little bit. I know this is intense. We're going to look at the book of Proverbs because this is the par excellence book on how to live life wisely and with integrity. There's so much to draw from this book, so much wisdom, so many tools, so many ideas on how to, to use our discernment. But I'm going to limit the scope to just the first nine chapters, and that still sounds like a lot. <laughs> but, but those chapters are, kind of work together. They are a letter that a father writes to his son, encouraging him to live life wisely and to make just the right kind of choices. And the way he does this is by sharing with his son some of the narratives or the speeches or the invitations that he's going to face when he's out in the city. And many of, of those narratives will come from friends and from relatives and from people that he doesn't even know. And, and so he wants him to be aware of those. And the two most predominant invitations or speeches that, will, that, that, will, that the son will be faced with are going to be two, and the father really highlights those two. And those are the speeches of two different women that are going to show up in this young, uh, young man's life. One of them is called the wise woman, and she, she basically represents wisdom. And the other one is called the foreign woman, and she is basically just an evil person. She represents evil. And... Those of you who want to jump out and say, oh, that is so unfair. You're using just the image of a woman to talk about evil and blah, 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 blah. When I was getting ready to, to, for, to prepare for this message, I was reading all these articles and all these scholars saying that it's so unfair to have a woman represent evil. And it was shocking to me that... None of them, at least not the ones that I read, realized that there was another woman also being presented as wisdom, an attribute of God. And so she's, she's part of God as well. And so that's just, I felt like I had to, had to explain that real quick. So these are the two women. They are back to back, right next to each other. And, and they both will offer different speeches to the, to the son. And the book says that his son, um, is going to encounter them, as I said, out there in the city. 
the, the temptations, the narratives, the speeches, like we do today out there. And right from the beginning, we find the father describing wisdom as a woman who shouts in the street. We've all read this in, in the book of Proverbs because this is in the first chapter. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. So she's out there. But then he describes the foreign woman who is also out there. And he says, she is out in the streets, the foreign woman. She's out there. She's also in the square. She's lying at wait in every corner. And that's the next slide. Is it there? Yeah. So both of them are there. He knows his son is going to encounter them. Because that's where the son lives. He needs to go out there to walk in the streets to get to his job. He needs to walk out there to meet with his friends. He needs to go out there to get some fresh air. We all need the city. But the father knows that it's going to be hard to tell these two women apart because they will offer him very similar things that will try to seduce him. And so he tells him that the lips of the foreign woman drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. So he tries to define her for him. The foreign woman has um, a speech that is smoother than oil and honey drips from her mouth. Oil, honey. And then he goes on to say what the wise woman will look like. And it's going to be exactly the same. She will also be like honey and sweet to his taste. That's Proverbs 24. The father says to his son, Eat honey, my son, for it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is like honey to your soul. So look at, how, look at how rich the language is. It is it is very romantic. It is very poetic. It is very erotic. And this is a very common theme we find in all the books of wisdom that we find in the Bible. And those books are the book of um, Proverbs, the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, and the fifth one, Song of Solomon. Yes, you remember that one. You thought you were going to get away from that book for this sermon, but no, I am going to bring it back. Because this language, the language that these two women are using is the exact same language that the lovers use in Song of Solomon. And Pastor Matt went over this thoroughly and Pastor Dave revisited it. Just the sexy language they use to describe each other. And at times weird too. So let's read how the lover talked about his bride. That's Song of Songs, chapter 4. He says, How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices. Oils. Your lips rub sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride, and milk and honey are under your tongue. Do you see all those words popping out? There's oil, there's milk, there's honey, there's honeycomb. All these are dripping from this women's mouth. These similarities are so striking. It's fascinating. And in the Song of Solomon, this language is used to describe the beauty of the human body and the beauty of sexual intimacy. And it is described as something that is good because God designed it. 
And here we have these women, two of them, who have completely different intentions, and both of them are offering the exact same thing that God considers good. So the father knows he needs to warn his son because he's got a difficult challenge before him. So he goes on to tell him the exact words that each woman will say to him. Because if the son pays close attention, he will be able to see past their beauty and will be able to tell the difference between them. And here are their speeches. They're both back to back in the same chapter, chapter 9. So pay pay close attention because this is is good. Verse 4 in chapter 9. This is the wise woman speaking. She says, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the path of understanding. What a great invitation. Now here goes the speech of the foreign woman. It is in verse 16 through 18. Look how similar it is. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says. Do you see that? It's basically the same thing. They're starting out with the same thing. But then she says, Stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Hmm. A little shady there. And if it's not shady enough, the father wants to clarify this for his son. So he adds a footnote that says... But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of death. Powerful speeches. Both of them are delivered as an invitation. They offer very similar things, namely food and pleasure and good pleasure. But the second speech The foreign woman's speech is a perversion of the speech of wisdom. Because the evil woman takes what wisdom has declared as good and truthful and alters it, tweaks it just enough to sound familiar, but not quite the same. Just enough. She's telling a lie, but it's in disguise. And the most dangerous lie is that which is closest to the truth. That is the most dangerous one. That is what porn offers to us. That is what adultery offers to us. That is what the fashion industry offers to us. That's why they all seduce us. But those lies are a pathway to death. And I'm not just talking about physical death. Let me show you what death looks like for a girl who wrote this poem. This is a poem written by a prostitute. You know, scratch that. Let me scratch that. This is a poem written by a victim of human trafficking. But you know what? Let me scratch that again. 
This is a poem written by Jenna, a girl who once had a dream. Listen to her words closely because when we humanize the victim, we cannot help but feel empathy for them. And once that happens, we can no longer shame them. We just can't. It's impossible. This is the poem she wrote to describe her experience. It goes like this. A knock on the door. A shot of liquor to calm the nerves. Standing with a grin across his face. A man you'll never know. Just another John Doe. The money not nearly enough to pay for your soul. Exposed standing on clad, raw and numb. You tremble as he touches you. Ignorant to the fact that you wanted to be someone. You had dreams of becoming famous and being happy. But what's a dream anymore? He stole that with his cold and shaky touch. Every lonely man that needed validation by a beautiful illusion naively ripped those dreams away. Turning you cold, bitter, jaded, unloved, exposed. This is one kind of death. But there's other kinds. There's the death of our relationship. The death of a marriage. The death of an opportunity. You name it. This is what the sex industry does to our society. And it all starts by taking something that is innately good and perverting it to take it out of the context in which God created it. And this is just, this isn't just true uh, for the sex industry. It applies just as well to the beauty industry and to the fashion industry. And I want to show you one last example. This time a video of how they make the mannequins that we see all over the city, out in the clothing stores, display windows. It's an interesting process. Uh, and, and I want you to see it. So if we can play it, please. could look like that. That sounds familiar. Once again, we see how the lies we believe are just not random narratives dropped out of nowhere. No. They are alterations of things that are good by God's design. 
like dreams and desires and passions and bodies. So what does it take for us to discern the lies from the truth and to choose the pathways that lead to life? How can we do that? Here's a very practical way of exercising the wisdom of the two different pathways that the Proverbs presents. It's, it's very, very practical, very straightforward. You can take it or leave it. I didn't take this from the Bible. I'm just sharing my own experience and what I do when I face trials. Next time you're faced with a dilemma of engaging in some kind of behavior that you are just not quite sure if it's good or not. Take some time, just pause, just pause. Just take 20 seconds to think and imagine yourself walking that pathway. See it in your mind. And I am not talking about fantasizing with someone. I am talking about imagining the consequences of walking down that road. And as you do that mental exercise, think of all the people that can be connected to that pathway. In small ways or in big ways. Think about the people that can be affected in small ways or in big ways. Think of the places it can take you spiritually and emotionally and even physically. Think about all the promises that God has made to you. The places he's told you he will take you if you follow him. Think about all the things that are precious to you. And once you've thought about all those things, which it really doesn't take that long, ask yourself this question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth the pain of someone else? Is it worth losing your sleep at night? Or, or losing your spouse? Maybe your challenge is not pornography or adultery or any of those things. Maybe it's body image. Maybe it's just the way you look at your own body. And if that's the case, let me tell you something. You are a precious child of God. You are complete in Him. You are made perfect in Him and by Him and through Him. And there is nothing you can do to keep you away from the Father's love for you. Nothing. No good things can get Him closer to you. And no bad things can get Him away from you. Nothing. Do you know how many times I do this mental exercise in my mind? Almost every week. And it helps me with every single one of my battles. All of them. Including sexual battles. And every time I choose wisely, I get to see God a little closer and my faith grows. And I experience a peace that I don't trade for anything. And I encounter the living God that is faithful and meets me where I'm at and satisfies my needs, all of them. That peace that I experience, I won't trade it for anything. But it takes some hard work. Every single choice we make 
matters. Every single choice we make either adds something positive to the larger community or destroys it a little more. What will it take for you to stand in the gap to restore the city you live in? What will it take for you to stand in that gap to restore the city you live in, to restore the relationship you live in, to restore the family you live in? What will it take? What will it take for us to realize that we are all members of one body? And that when we are broken, when one part is broken, we're all broken. What will it take? The task is daunting. I know that. But that should only give us one more reason to look at the cross and rely on the one who can conquer it all, Jesus. One more reason to look to him, to look back to him, to look forward at him, to have him in sight at all times. Because Jesus never lost faith and he never gave up because before the incarnation, he could still see us and he could still see our mess and he could still see the state of our society. And he didn't say, "Mm, not worth it. He said, it's worth it. And I will feel in my own body what they're experiencing in their own to heal them. He never gave up. For while we were still sinner, he still died for us. And he gave up his body for the sake of the body, his bride. And I believe that God is calling us to do the exact same thing, but with his help. (laughs) Because apart from him, we can do nothing. What is God calling you to this morning? What is he saying to you? What is he inviting you to? Where is that pathway that leads to life? Is he showing it to you? Maybe he's asking you to get in the way of this monster, this beast. And maybe you can step in and join an organization or abolitionist. And if that's the case, you can send me an email. You can send an email to Chandra Galloway, one of our abolitionists here. She's wonderful, and she's fighting head-on this beast, and she needs help. Whatever it is that God is calling you to, whatever it is that God has put in your heart, let that be your thought as you take part of his broken body in this moment of communion. Please come forward and and take the elements of communion and think about all the things that God has told you. And then we are going to take communion together. Just make sure you do consider these things. Um, How can you choose the pathways that will lead you to life? We don't do things alone. We do them with Him. Please come forward.